Hello, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I am your host, Dr. M, and this is episode number 33. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. David Allison. He is an award-winning scientific writer and researcher who has been studying obesity for the better part of two plus decades. He is the Dean of the School of Public Health at Indiana University in Bloomington. Dr. Allison comes on the show today to share his wisdom in years and years of looking at the problem of obesity in society. He has authored over 650 scientific publications while receiving many awards for the quality of his research while honing in on the rigors of how to do a study in a quality and meaningful way that therefore can be utilized by the scientific community and society at large to make better decisions for the health care of humans. His educational background notes stops in Hofstra University for his PhD in clinical and school psychology in 1990, and then going on to the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Kennedy Institute for a postdoctoral fellowship in the Department of Pediatrics and Behavioral Psychology, uh, completed in 1991. He went on to be the dean of the School of Public Health at Indiana University in 2017 until today. As you'll note in our conversation, his focus is clearly on evidence and data and how we can use both of those for the understandings of the science of obesity and what we can do to change the trajectory that we're currently on. He provides a very insightful look into the world of nutritional epidemiology in public health, while also detailing the many pitfalls and problems of the current research that's being published. We get into a little bit of the information about how that's then being used by the modern media to say X, Y, and Z is what's going on when maybe there isn't enough research nor data to really make those conclusions and offer that up for folks to make decisions on what their future health will look like. He is, in a word, a scientist of the first order. He really wants to have the best credible evidence to make decisions on. And that at times can be very frustrating because as you'll hear in the conversation, there is a very strong limit on what we are able to say based on the data that exists today. Almost to the point that we feel like there isn't much we can say with the current data that exists. And so with that, let's get into this a little bit and really look at what the high quality research that Dr. David Allison has put forth for us to consume, and he is just a, a, an excellent, excellent researcher. Well, hello, Dean David Allison. I really appreciate you being on Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on today to discuss the obesity epidemic and, and just the obesity problem in general. Well, it is truly my pleasure to be here with you, and I thank you for the privilege. So let's begin. I want to go look at your New England Journal of Medicine article paper in 2013, where you said, many beliefs about obesity persist in the absence of supporting scientific evidence, presumptions. Some persist despite contradicting evidence, myths. The promulgation of unsupported beliefs may yield poorly informed policy decisions 
inaccurate clinical and public health recommendations, and an unproductive allocation of research resources and may divert attention away from useful evidence-based information. So when I've looked at a lot of your papers, you have really honed in on the scientific method to try and understand how to get the best data to give the best advice to humans in all spheres, whether it's the policy people, the uh, parent, the clinician. So let's start. Define obesity, and then I really want you to run down and go through what do we know about why we're having such an obesity epidemic in this country? Sure. So defining obesity is both hard and simple, depending upon the point of view one takes. Uh, defining it operationally, meaning what do we do on an everyday basis to say, this is how many people are obese in our population? How do we count that? Uh, what's the sort of national and international standard, that's very straightforward. That's just a rule. And it's like saying, how fast is too fast on the highway? Well, it's too fast when whoever, whichever government agency is in charge of that particular stretch of highway uh, makes a law and puts up a sign and says, the speed limit here is 65 or 55 or 70 or whatever it is, above that limit is too fast, just by definition. And we have the same thing in obesity. Our operational definition which is just done by fiat, um, it's informed fiat, right? That is, it's a declaration that is informed by evidence, but ultimately it's just a choice. And that is, uh, we say a BMI between 18.5, BMI is body mass index. We can come back to that in a minute, what that means. Body mass index less than 18.5 is considered underweight. 18.5 to 25 is considered normal or healthy weight. 18, uh, 25 to 30 is considered overweight, 30 and above is obese. And then within that, we have other categories where 30 to 35 is class one, uh, what one might call uh, mild or moderate obesity, uh, 35 to 40 is class two, and uh, 40 and above is class three, what one might call severe obesity, and we used to call it morbid obesity. So those are just the operational definitions. And they're perfectly fine, or at least they're useful. That's maybe a better way of saying it. They're useful at the population level for, let's say, counting how many Americans are obese or are severely obese. Um, those are important. They help us plan and monitor progress and so forth. Many people will come along and say, oh, but obesity or BMI, body mass index, uh, is just weight over the square of height. And because of that, it doesn't take into account your body composition, how much body fat you have in the strict sense. It's just mass. And that's true. And it's often said as though this is a revelation. Every few years, some newspaper articles come out on this, and there's some great revelation. We've known this, of course, for centuries. And this is not new to anybody who studies in the field, but it works for population levels. Now, if somebody says, but if you had a bodybuilder come to you as a patient, they might have a high BMI. They might be in the obese range. And yet they would be perhaps incredibly fit and lean and not obese. To which one replies, well, of course, don't use BMI to diagnose the bodybuilder. You can use it as a quick screening tool to talk to anybody about whether or not they might be obese, but then you want to probe further. 
For most people, it's going to work okay, but not for everybody. So you can have people below the cutoff who have an excessively fatty body composition and people above the cutoff who don't. And that's where as a clinician, you've got to, to work more precisely. But again, for epidemiologic work, it's okay. Right. Uh, for research-based work, that's not epidemiologic. If possible, we prefer things like dual X-ray, uh, dual energy X-ray absorptiometry or DEXA for short, which is one of many methods available to measure body fat quite accurately in people, not just body weight. And then that's a better way that we use in our research studies when we can. Now, conceptually, right. obesity is very different and more difficult to define. I've just defined it operationally. I've just said, well, here's a rule that other people tell us to use, like the speed limit. What you'd really want to know and if you said to me, um, what's, the, what's the real definition of driving too fast on the highway? I'd say, oh, well, that's much more challenging. What do you mean by too fast? And I, you'd probably come back and say something like, driving at a sufficient speed such that the benefit of driving at that speed is outweighed by the increased risk of harm to self, others, or the environment by driving at that speed. And then I'd say, okay, wow, that's a lot in there. Uh, we've got to unpack. We've got to unpack what's the benefit of driving at that speed. We've got to unpack the harm or risk to self, to others, to the environment. And we've got to think about how we differentially value those things. And we've got to think about what evidence we have. So that's where it's very tricky. And you get into debates about metabolically healthy obese, meaning could I, for example, have a body mass index that's way below 30, but still be obese by my metabolic state and vice versa? Could I, so you'd have, you'd have the non-obese, but the metabolically obese, but healthy body weight. I'm sorry, I reversed that previously, right? If I have a BMI below the threshold for obesity, but metabolically, physiologically, I'm in essence obese. Right. We can have that and we can have the reverse. We can have, can have a BMI above the threshold and metabolically and physiologically be obese, uh, be healthy. And, and then we have to say, well, what is the evidence here? And there, basically, we say being obese is having an excess of body fat. It is about body fat by definition. And it's an excess of body fat that is sufficient to impair health or longevity or both. That's the usual conceptual definition of obesity. How we then turn that into a specific definition of obesity either for a population or an individual, is uh, there's no universally agreed upon definition. Does that help? Yeah, it does. And, and for me, I think that's the, the point that is so incredibly necessary to elucidate, because I think about in kids alone, we have children of all body sizes, where we say they're obese, really skinny, middle of the way. You know, each one of them may say that they're healthy in their own respect. The obese child or the child who has obesity may look on the outside that they are unhealthy, but metabolically they'd be completely normal. Whereas we have, like, we think about the the Asian um, discussion related to visceral adipose tissue. So the skinny fat person may look metabolically 
abnormal, but physically they look fine. So I think to have that nuance is very important because for me, when we talk about obesity as an epidemic, it is just a marker of risk because more often than not, somebody who is obese tends to have increased risk for diabetes, heart disease, inflammation, and longevity issues. So let's segue there now that we have the definitions laid out and what we're thinking. What do we know? I know you've studied this, you know, ad, ad, ad nauseum in, in your work is fantastic. What do we know currently about the obesity epidemic in the United States? Where are we seeing the breakpoints occur primarily? Well, what we know is a few things. First is the rates of obesity are higher than they have ever been in our country and higher than they've been in not any place in the world, but almost any place in the world throughout history, as far as we know. We often hear people use phrasing like obesity continues to increase or is increasingly prevalent or something. We know, we could, of course, that implies knowledge of the future. So we don't know with absolute certainty that obesity is increasing in real time, but we know that it has, has increased up until present, and we have no direct knowledge that it is decreasing in our country. The second thing we know is that it's increased in every age, race, sex, geographic, and other group we can look at. And that's important because it suggests these ubiquitous factors. Now, that doesn't mean it's increased equally in every age, race, and sex group, but it has increased in every age, race, and sex, and geographic group. But there's some areas where it's increased more. So, for example, it has increased to a greater extent in rural areas than in non-rural areas. So the rural-urban divide is very, very strong in obesity. What's especially interesting about that is it looks like it's probably at least partially causal, that it's not just a correlation that people who happen to live in rural areas happen to be more obese because being in a rural area correlates with something else. Uh, Arlen Price from the University of Pennsylvania many years ago did a wonderful study, and he took some old data from Remy Caterre, who had a data set called the Iowa Adoption Project. And what Arlen did is he looked at children or people who were adopted into rural homes versus people who were adopted into urban homes or non-rural homes. And it looks like the process of being adopted is quasi-random. So it's not a true randomized experiment, but it's close. And so now you've sort of broken a lot of that confounding, that correlation does not equal causation issue. And what Caterer found is that, uh, excuse me, what Price found in the Caterer data is that people who were adopted into rural homes were more likely to grow up to be obese than people adopted into urban homes. We found out, my research team and I, Kevin Fontaine and others and myself, did similar studies years later using adoption studies. And we found that children adopted in lower socioeconomic status homes were more likely to become 
obese than were children adopted into higher socioeconomic status homes. However, that association did not fully account for all of the association between socioeconomic status and obesity that is generally observed, suggesting that some of that association was causal and some was correlational, but not causal. So we know that on average, and I'm making a very sweeping statement here, people of lower socioeconomic status are more likely to be obese than people of higher socioeconomic status. Minority groups tend to be a little bit more obese or some than majority white European Americans, but there's much nuance under there and we need to get under the hood because those simplistic statements don't reflect the richness of reality and just repeating them as people often do may lead us astray. So for example, African-American women have a much higher rate of obesity than do European-American women. However, African-American men do not have a much higher rate of obesity than do European-American men. So we have a sex by race interaction suggesting some complexity there that we don't fully understand. In contrast, Hispanic or Latinx American persons tend to have more obesity than do European American persons, regardless of gender. So it doesn't hold up in a different group. We know that the statement that obesity is more common among lower persons of lower socioeconomic status than of persons of higher socioeconomic status. This goes back all the way to the 1960s when my dear friend, who's long since deceased now, Dr. Albert J. Mickey Stunkard, uh, did the Manhattan, Midtown Manhattan Project and found that there was an inverse association between socioeconomic status and obesity. And that kicked off this belief that's now persisted for many decades. But when people have looked at that, it's very consistent among adult white women. So among adult white women in developed countries, there's a very clear, consistent inverse relationship between body mass index and socioeconomic status. But when you look at other age, race, sex groups, that is not clear and consistent. So for example, among African-American women, there's almost no relationship between socioeconomic status and obesity. So we need to take a deeper dive on this and try to figure that out. There were some hints about a five or 10 years ago where some of the public health pundits were enthusiastic about some of the steps we were taking at the community level and looked at little tiny hints of data and said, look, obesity is going down, we're making an impact. But I think on, on further reflection, it's not clear that any of that was anything other than a blip that when one looks at more data more carefully, there's, to my knowledge, no compelling evidence that in any uh, large segment of our population, obesity rates have gone down. Right. And so when you think about that, you're trying to unpack pieces of sociologic data to find niches and groups that are, are, are struggling more than another. Clearly, you know, based on the evidence you're finding, it doesn't seem that the, the, that's there in a way that's easy to unpack. So if we say, okay, well, that exists currently based on the data, 
if we go back and say, okay, what are we really talking about here? Then why is it such a class effect across the board where everybody for some reason or another seems to be going up in weight over the past 50 years? Is it, you know, in the world now, what George Bray famously stated that, you know, genes are loading the gun, the environment is pulling the trigger. And that's why we're seeing this. And we're trying to now unpack what those environmental exposomes are, or where are we now in that side of the game? I think that in the environment versus genetic kind of discussion, I think these discussions, when they begin with sort of what's the causal effect, are almost always distracting red herrings. They persist, I think, for hundreds of years because of their political and social valence for many of us, but they're not meaningful questions. You know, to me, it would be sort of like saying, we're studying how cars move and um, what's really going on here? Is it fuel or is it that there's a mechanistic thing made out of metal and rubber. Like, well, you can't have one without the other. You can't put fuel into nothing and expect to have a vehicle to take you somewhere. And you can't have a vehicle without fuel. So these are just nonsensical sort of questions. Genes are involved and the environment's involved. Right. And to think that we would have an animal for which genes are not important is nonsense. And to think that an animal could and humans are animals, of course, that would live in the live in an environment. Environments don't matter. You can't not live in an environment. So these are just nonsensical questions. Um, genetic factors affect body weight and body composition, and so do um, environmental factors. And I think any attempt at sort of trying to have some sort of argument is silly. I think we should just talk about specific causal effects. Now there, I do think one thing that we could start to do more of as a community of scholars discussing these issues is to make the distinction between the cause of Y and the causal effect of X on Y. And those may sound similar, but they're not quite the same. Professor Donald Rubin from Harvard University has probably been the best person in recent history, at least in my mind, to have discussed this. And we can, we have very good scientific methods, at least in some cases, for looking at the causal effect of X on Y. So if you said to me, for example, I want to know what's the causal effect of eating ultra processed food, and you give me some definition of ultra processed food that actually works, that I can, you know, I could go and buy some ultra foods that we clearly can agree on by that definition are ultra processed and some that aren't, I can do a study. I can say, well, do you mean at isocaloric levels or not? Do you mean feeding ad lib or not? Do you mean in locked conditions so they can only eat the food I give them, but they can eat as much as they want or not? What do you mean? Once we agree on what we mean, then I can do the experiment. I can either do it literally, or even if I can't do it literally, I can at least do it hypothetically. I can at least say, well, I could imagine doing an experiment in which I fed people diet A versus not diet A with appropriate controls. And then I would look at the effect of the causal effect of diet A, in this case, a diet with ultra processed food, for example, 
on obesity levels. And I could say, this is the effect of giving people a diet of ultra processed food defined in this way on obesity. Now that's a completely different question than saying to what extent has ultra processed food in the environment contributed to the obesity pandemic, right? One is a question about the effects of giving a certain diet on the body weights or BMIs or fat levels or obesity, whether or not one crosses an obesity threshold among individuals. And another is about the effects of something historically. And the effects of something historically are not only unknowable in the strictest epistemologic sense from an, just because of an experimental design point of view, right? We can't literally go back in time and run the, run the tape again with a, a different condition. But even if we could conceptually do that, we have to say, what do you mean, right? So somebody would have said, you know, this old example from philosophy, if we say that a man stabs another man and, uh, on the street at night and the stabbed man dies, do we say that that death was caused by a knife? Do we say it was caused by stabbing? Was it caused by the fact that the stabbed man wasn't wearing a bullet or a, uh, a protective Kevlar vest? Was it uh, caused by mental illness left untreated in the population? Was it caused by lack of policing of the area? So you can, was it caused by blood loss? You can parse it any way you want and there's no right answer to that question. And so I think that when we think about the environment, it's probably less useful, though not, not without use, to think about what caused the obesity epidemic. And when we do ask that, we need to ask it more carefully than we generally do. And more useful to say, what are the causal effects of altering certain factors? And those can be genes, environments, food, diet, exercise, et cetera, on the weights or body fatness levels of individuals. Right, and I think you, in your New England Journal of Medicine paper, when you went through myths and, and suppositions, in fact, you clearly stated in table three that you listed things that seem to be at this point relative fact, right? So, you know, you wrote, although genetic factors play a large role, heritability is not destiny. Calculations show that moderate environmental changes can promote as much weight loss as the most efficacious pharmaceutical agents available, right? So what I'm hearing you say is that, you know, we still need to do further study on specific factors that may be changing, you know, the effect of humans at this level that then promotes obesity, but it's a very hard study to do because there are so many variables, right? And, and although we need to do them, it's getting harder for me to understand how are we going to, as a society, really do these studies, whether it's nutritional, which are very difficult, difficult because as you stated in an animal model, translationally, we could put a mouse in a cage, control for all the environmental factors relatively, and give them a standard chow, and then change the chow for the next mouse and watch the outcome. How do we do this in humans? to a level that we're gonna be able to say without a shadow of a doubt, okay, here's what is driving X. So how do you parse that out from, like, from a societal perspective as scholars? How do we start to really truly answer these questions? You know, I think of 
you know, um, the work of Richard Johnson, you know, and, and he mechanistically, which I love his book, Nature Wants Us to Be Fat, started looking mechanistically at what, let's say, for example, fructose is doing when it's metabolized to uric acid, which then turns on survival switches that then look like obesity, fatty liver, and all this. How do we really, as a group of physicians and, and, and PhDs and, and the like that are looking at this research, how do we start to really truly answer these questions? So I think that what we do is first, we need to ask clear questions. And again, we need to say, are we asking about what the effects have been in the environment or what the effects could be? Uh, we can have very, we have things that can have very powerful, profound effects. The most easy example is a new pharmaceutical available that if we say, let's go back in time and what was the effect of that pharmaceutical in some usual definition of effect? we might say zero because it didn't exist, right? Now you could alternatively say, why were people obese in the past? Well, you could say, because we didn't have this drug. It was the absence of this drug that made us all obese. If we were all taking this drug that doesn't exist today or that didn't exist before today, we wouldn't be obese. And that's, there's nothing illogical about that. But I think what's probably useful, more useful, is to just say, if we start giving this drug, to such and such people under such and such circumstance, what effect will we have? And then how do we determine those things? And I think whenever possible, randomized, controlled, double-blind trials in humans on the outcome of interest, for the duration of interest, at the dose of interest, under the conditions of use of interest. So what we frequently hear is somebody saying, my, my substance, my food, my, or my, my procedure, my food, my exercise plan, my whatever it is, will cause this. You should or should not take it. And then you have to say, well, what did you actually study? And so when I talk to journalists particularly about this, I say, well, let's go through a list of questions. If you want to be able to draw a conclusion, not, to, not, not conjecture, right? We have a book in our group that our school has put out called It's About Knowing. And we say, because conjecture is good, but knowing is better. Conjecture is good. It's fine to conjecture. It's fine to say, I think this is true. This seems likely to be true. But it's better to say, when you can, we know this to be true. It's been demonstrated to be true. If you want to say that this has been demonstrated to be true for effects in humans, basically, you need to have a few things. The first thing is you need to have a study, at least one. Second thing is, and I go through this with journalists, they say, well, there's Somebody says this new drug or this new diet or this food or this substance, this dietary supplement has this effect. What do you think? And I said, question number one, is there a study? No, game over. Yes, let's go to question two. Question two, is the study in humans? No, game over. Yes, let's go to question three. Question three, was the outcome statistically significant? Yes, keep going. No, stop. What was the outcome? Was it the relevant outcome? Now, here's where it starts to get, up till now, it's pretty easy. And here's where people often make mistakes. They say, for example, well, what we saw was that people were more likely to buy such and such food, or they bought less of it or more of it. And therefore, they'll be more or less obese. We say, wait a minute, obesity is not about how much food you buy, or it's not defined by that, it may be influenced by that. It's about your level of body fat. So if you wanna make a statement about obesity, you need to look at levels of body fat or body weight. 
And if it's actually obesity and not just weight or body fat, you actually need to look at those thresholds. It's not enough if you say to me, well, look, you lost half a kilo of body fat. I say, yeah, but I, I wasn't obese before. So losing a half a kilo didn't make me less obese. I already wasn't obese. We need to define that, that, that outcome and say, is this the outcome about which a claim is being made? If it's about obesity, then it needs to be obesity levels. If it's about body fat, the outcome needs to be body fat. If it's about body weight or BMI, the outcome needs to be body weight or BMI. Not food intake at a test meal, not intention to buy something, etc. The next thing we, we need to look at is duration. If you're stating or implying that this is a long-term effect, have we got a long-term result? Or is this something that was shown in one day? And we can go on to magnitude of effect. We can go on to the dose. If you're saying to me, yes, if I ate 100 pomegranates a day, this would happen. But in reality, no one's going to eat 100 pomegranates a day. They might at best eat one pomegranate a day. All of those things come into play. So if you were going to design a study today based on your knowledge and how you tend to see the study being the most efficacious and giving us an answer that gives us causation and not correlation. How, what would the study look like today in humans? Well, it would first of all involve randomization. And that's the key factor. Everything else is subsidiary to that if we want to say we want to draw a causal conclusion. And that means we randomly assign, it really means random. Many people say they randomly assign, but in fact, they don't randomly assign, they do something, some other mistaken procedure. We randomly assign units of observation, which are generally people in this context, to either a treatment condition or a control condition. That's the key. After that, we are entitled to make causal conclusions if we execute the study properly and get a statistically significant outcome. However, there are many things that will modulate what that causal conclusion is. What we're really entitled to make causal conclusions about is treatment assignment. That is, I can conclude that there was a causal effect of being assigned to condition A versus condition B. Now, I might want to call condition A ultra processed food or low carb diet or pomegranates or something else. Uh, and you might come along and say, hold it, hold it, hold it. When you assign them to what you called ultra processed food or low carb diets or pomegranates, don't you realize that you also manipulated some other factors like energy intake or color of the food or perceptions or sweetness or any number of other things. Um, and how do you know that that's not what the effect is due to? And I can say, you're right. Uh, I don't know. But what I can say is being assigned to the diet that I call this had that effect. But I can't unequivocally say it was the ultra processing per se, or it was the pomegranates per se. It might've been the color of the food. And those are things that we have to design things better. So if, if color or perceptions are concerned, let's blind it if we can. That's hard to do in diet studies, especially long-term. Short-term, right, I could grind all the food up, I could homogenize it, and I could put it into your gut with an opaque tube 
And if I just want to look at the molecules of the food, and I could probably do that for one meal. But you and most other normal people would not allow me to do that for 365 days for everything you ate. And even if you'd allow me, I probably couldn't afford it. So then we have problems. We, we can't separate the perceptions of the food from the molecules of the food. And that's a very challenging thing in diet studies. Yeah. And I think nutritional studies, you know, get a lot of negative uh, press in from the from the community because there's so many variables that we can't control for. And then something comes out, some study gets published in a paper, X is the answer and the media goes and runs with it. And then you'll find later on that another study refutes it. And so this has always been, I think, the frustration for a lot of Americans is that this data is published and the studies are not well structured. Uh, I know I've heard you speak to this and the answers are not rigorous enough to give us a, a causation event yet. This is published in the media and we hear about these things as, okay, this is the, the, the golden ticket to resolution. And, and, it, and it is somewhat frustrating to be a physician in this day and age when somebody asked me the question of what is the answer to this? And it is very difficult to give them a truism because I'm not too sure how many truisms we truly have. And I've heard, you know, to, to your point, what you've spoken of is, you know, we have ideas, we have conjecture, we have some truisms, but there's still a lot more research to be done. So if you were to say, again, you've been looking at this topic for quite a long time. In 2022, what do we truly believe or know is leading to the obesity epidemic? Are there any obvious truisms? Sure. There are some colleagues who would disagree with me, I believe, on this, but I would say there are two things that strike me as when we look at the balance of evidence. Again, I can't point to a single study that absolutely definitively shows this. When we look at the balance of evidence, the first thing I would say is that there are multiple factors involved, and there's absolutely no logical reason why we need to think there's only a single factor. Right. I think all the available evidence strongly suggests there's not a single factor. So that's important because each factor contributing some effect adds up. And it's very likely that we will have to look at multiple factors to turn back the hands of time, so to speak. Right. The second thing is, I think some of those factors are counterintuitive or non-intuitive to many parties. So for example, a frequent statement that one heard in the literature until recently, and actually probably still hears, is what the attorneys would call an ipsodixit statement. Ipsodixit being a Latin phrase for, uh, which roughly translates to, he himself said it, meaning it's true because I said it's true. That's my only right. evidence. Just, it's an assertion is genes can't be accounting for the uh, epidemic or contributing to the epidemic because there's not enough time. And this implies that evolution somehow stopped thousands of years ago and that it's not always ongoing and that it can't have an effect in real time. And that's, a, that's absolutely not true. There was in fact a, just a paper coming out, just came out in the um, genetics and ecology and evolutionary biology literature in non-human animals, talking about how with climate change, um, evolution seems to be happening faster in some species than others might have thought. 
because the environment changes and species adapt through evolution. And humans are no different. We're, we're animals too. And it's very clear that not everybody reproduces at the same rate as everybody else. And as soon as you have differential reproduction, you potentially have the gene pool changing. So that's going on. And we've also got other factors like assortative mating, and we've written about that, which doesn't change allele frequencies, but it does change genotype frequencies, leading to more spread in the distribution and more obesity. So those things are ongoing, but they're probably not the biggest effects. I do personally believe that the biggest effect is increased energy intake. What drives the increased energy intake then merits further discussion. Is it, as some people have suggested, increased focus on consuming carbohydrate? Or is it increased palatability and affordability of food? Is it other factors that make us collectively more desirous of uh, eating higher amounts of food or able to eat higher amounts of food? Is it intergenerational ratchet kind of effects? Uh, all of these are possible. All of these are plausible. But the bottom line is I do think we're eating more food. I don't think anyone disputes the first and second laws of thermodynamics. And so that while we can have refined models that say, how does um, differences, differences in ultimately the amount of energy we store in our body occur, it is the amount of energy we store in our bodies that is stored in our bodies as body fat that make us fatter than we would otherwise have been. And so those are really the factors we need to look at. So I think increased energy intake is probably the biggest driving factor. We now need to ask what has contributed to that, but more importantly, we just need to be practical. And it's less important what contributed to that and more important to what could turn that around. And we need to look at everything from food marketing, food pricing structure, the types of food we eat, our cultural beliefs, the statements we make about food, the pharmaceuticals we eat, uh, we take, which we know affect body weight and body fatness, the light we're exposed to, our sleeping habits, our exercise habits, our stress levels, how and where we live, on and on, all of these things can have effects and seem to have effects. When, when, when you look at these things, do you, cause you're, again, you're looking at this from a macro perspective. Do you ever tend to look at it from the micro perspective of what's the mechanism of adipocyte deposition? What would drive that to then say, okay, this is the target I want to chase. Um, so for example, I would say something in the, in, in the framework of, let's say, sugar beverages, high fructose load, the mechanism there is it's going to be rapidly absorbed into the liver, which will then trigger a series of events genetically that will then add to adipocyte deposition in the liver as well as in the periphery. Now we know clearly there is statistics that kids and adults are having more fatty liver disease. So therefore we have, okay, a, a, a mechanism to drive all the way back to the, to the sugar via a liquid beverage. Do you look at it from that perspective much at all? I think from the point of view of the mechanistic perspective, we have lots of good ways of getting at that and we need to use them all. We rely on mixtures of animal studies, of in vitro studies, of human clinical studies, 
And those, as Douglas Mook wrote a famous paper years ago called In Defense of External Invalidity, in which he makes the very nice distinction between what can happen and what does happen. And he says, sometimes you want to know what can happen. And your laboratory analog might be the best way for that. He was really writing from the point of view of psychology. And sometimes you know, want to know what does happen. And then you need to sort of be out in the quote unquote real world. And I think it's not exactly a one-to-one -one here, but I think that's very similar where we can make the distinction with diets, including sugar and sugar-sweetened beverages and so on, and talk about what can happen and what does happen. If you want to know what can happen, really understand things, you need to do mechanistic studies. You need to do things in humans and animal models and in vitro and so on and start to figure things out. And many people have, and that's great. I'm not a biochemist. I can't speak to the biochemistry per se, but I'm a statistician and I can speak to what does happen and what evidence shows and how to design those studies. And for those, you want to ask what happens in randomized controlled trials that we discussed earlier. So right. if you to do that, then while it's very helpful to know mechanism, because you can design studies better and you can interpret them better, the key is to design the study right with randomized controlled trials. And those, some of those trials have been done around things with um, sugar-sweetened beverages and macronutrient composition. And those studies, um, some of those studies uh, remain controversial. It does appear that among people who who are given additional sugar-sweetened beverage, excuse me, given additional sugar-sweetened beverages to consume in randomized controlled trials, that causes weight gain. What's less crystal clear is in real-world settings, does getting people who already consume sugar-sweetened beverages to stop reliably lead to weight loss or fat loss, there's clearly some evidence suggesting the answer is yes, but I don't think it's incontrovertible. So as the Dean of the School of Public Health, how do you, let me see the best way to say this. How do you say, okay, we need the data, but we're in a crisis of economics and medical health where disease is, on the exponential upswing based on many different reasons, one of the biggest ones being obesity, how do we structure our public health policy without having all of the great data that we need, but we're in a crisis, so we really need to almost throw darts at the board to see what happens. You know, for example, I'll think of the simplistic one that I see as a pediatrician, and I look at the school lunch programs, I'm in North Carolina and in the, in the Charlotte area, and when I look at the macronutrient composition, the total caloric intake of a child who is eating 66% of their meals at school, that alone to me says the energy balance model is off for these kids. How do we then advance public policy without having the rigorous double-blind placebo-controlled studies done, but we need something now? How do you, as, a, as, a, as the, the specialist in this space, how do you you know, go against those two competing interests? Well, first of all, I want to make very clear that I'm speaking only for myself. So your question of as the dean, uh, I'm speaking as David Allison. 
Gotcha. I'm not speaking for any other organization, for any organization. Okay. Secondly, I think Sir Austin Bradford Hill in 1965 laid this out beautifully. This is in his very famous paper on going from association to causation, which was motivated largely by the question at the time that he was very involved in, which was, does smoking cause lung cancer? Yeah. And he makes the very clear distinction between trying to draw a conclusion about the truth of a proposition and trying to decide what to do. And you're asking me now about what to do. So up till now, we've mostly been talking about how to draw conclusions about the truth of propositions. What Correct. Do we do? Now you're saying, what do we do? And what we know and what we do are two completely different things. Right. And the standards for saying, I know X to be true and let us do X are very different things. Right. And there is some consensus about what the standards are for saying, I know X to be true. And we've talked about what those standards are, randomized controlled trials and so forth. Right. But in life, we all have to do things in which we don't have perfect knowledge. So um, many of us tell our children that we love them. Do you know of any randomized controlled trial that says um, telling your children you love them is helpful? I don't, but I still, <laughs> I still do it. Uh, many of us buy our spouse uh, a Valentine's Day gift on Valentine's Day. Do you know of any randomized controlled trial showing it's a good idea? No, but we still do it. Now, if you and I were to walk down the aisle of the uh, supermarket and there was a bottle of cleaning fluid, and you held it up to me and you said, David, do you know much about the chemical or chemicals in this bottle of cleaning fluid? I would say no. And you'd say, would you like to drink some? I'd say no. And you'd say, you might say, well, do you know that they're harmful? No. Well, why don't you drink some then? I'd say, well, I don't know that it's harmful, but I don't need to drink it. And it could be harmful. And it's a reasonable heuristic for me to say, you know what? I don't drink bottles of cleaning fluid unless I have incredible knowledge that it happens not to be harmful and has some great benefit for me. Nothing illogical or unreasonable about that. Similarly, on the positive side, we might walk into some situation and you, say, and you might say, um, we don't have great evidence that this thing will work, that X will work, but do you think we should do it? And there's nothing unreasonable about saying, yes, we should do it. But we need to recognize that we've now made a social judgment. And that social judgment takes into account many things. You might, for example, say, I don't think we should implement this policy because um, my instincts, my gut tells me that it's not going to be effective. My, I might say my gut tells me it does, it will. And we're entitled to our different intuitions, but we should recognize that they're intuitions, not facts. The second thing is there might be values or not might be, there are values involved, right? So you might say, let's have a um, policy here that um, provides free cupcakes to any kid in the school who comes to math Olympiad practice because Getting trained in math is so important. We really value this. And that brings the kids in and it's a good deal. And I might say not eating cupcakes is so important that that's a bad idea. 
who's right? It depends yeah. on what your value is. How much right. do you value the benefit of not eating cupcakes? How much do you value the benefit of studying math? And again, there's no right answer here. And it gets even trickier when we start to get into things like valuing autonomy, valuing the freedom of movement, of commerce, of the economy. Think about the vitriolic debates we've had around COVID-19 lockdowns. Yeah, incredible. There's both, a, there's both a, an empirical question, how much do the lockdowns help? But then there's a, a values question. One person may say saving lives is the most important directly from not getting infected with SARS-CoV-2. Someone else may say preserving mental health, economics, well-being from having an open society is more important. These are subjective questions of value, of politics, of morality, of principles, as well as sometimes intuition in the face of unknowns. So there's no right answer. What we need to be, you asked me, as a professional, what, what I need to do, I feel, as a professional is be honest, communicate clearly with the public, say, these are the facts that we know of. These are the reasons to conjecture. This is what's likely to happen or what we know will happen if we know. But you then need to decide how to combine that, you meaning society at large, how to combine that with your values to decide whether to move forward or not on some action. And that's what Sir Austin Bradford Hill lays out clearly with the smoking issue. And he says, on the science, we need to decide whether smoking causes lung cancer. And he says, I think it does, and, and I agree with him. Yeah, and I, I find it interesting, you know, the whole COVID saga that we just went through. I think for me, the science that I'm reading at the bench level is some of the best science I've ever seen. I think in society right now, I'm not too sure if science took a hit so much as the institutions took a hit. For example, when we have a restaurant that is being told by the government that you need to wear a mask when you walk in, but then you can sit there for hours as long as you want without the mask. But if you go to the bathroom, you have to wear a mask. I think that these policies that are put into place have undermined in a large way what we as, as physicians and you know, myself personally, when I go into the clinic and a patient walks in and says, this is insane. Why are we doing this? I, I can't justify it, right? So I, I think science is the best it's been, but I'm not too sure how we've messaged the science has made any sense, especially in the COVID, the reality of COVID. And I think to some extent nutrition as well, because I think we really have a hard time messaging what the best answer to do in the nutrition world is. And, and so I think, to your point, I, I would really love to see better messaging around the science that we want people to understand. Here's what we think, but this is what we know. And I'm not too sure that's being done the way, the way we need it to be. What do you say to that? I think that the truthfulness, accuracy, and reasonableness of scientific communications in general and around controversial topics, including nutrition and obesity in particular, is something we very much need to attend to as a society. We need to do better. And I think it's on all of us to work on doing better. What I will say is that these issues are often framed as though they're new issues. 
That is not true. If you go back to the earliest days of vaccines, Edward Jenner, if you go back to inoculation and the vitriolic debates between Benjamin Franklin and Cotton Mather about inoculation for smallpox, if you think debates around anti-vaxxers and pro-vaccine people today are vitriolic, go back and look at Cotton Mather and Benjamin Franklin, and they make us look polite today. Hmm. If you look at statements around iodine and radiation after the earthquake in Japan in 2011, you will see disinformation and misinformation. So this is not new. This is throughout history, but it is still a problem today. And I would agree that some statements in the field of nutrition in particular have not been helpful. I think they're often made too strongly. A common false narrative, I think that what I, involves what I would call retrodiction, meaning sort of going back in time and you know, sort of saying I said something, which I didn't exactly really say. Um, it seems to be common in science in general and in nutrition science in particular, which is the scientist or academic comes out at time one and says, X is true. And they say X is true with great force. And they say X is true with very little caveat, right? So they say X is true, I'm confident X is true. You should believe X is true. You should act on the fact that X is true. And if you don't believe X is true, you're probably ignorant or confused or bigoted or um, biased. And then time goes by and some new data comes out perhaps that says, mm, doesn't look like X is true. X is either false or it's just not clear whether X is true or X is true, but it seems like a small effect or something like that. And the public says, you guys, you got, you scientists, you're flip-floppers. We don't, we can't trust you. You say one thing one time and one thing another time. And this is especially true in nutrition. Right. And then the scientific community comes out and says, no, no, no. Come general public, you didn't understand us. We never said definitively X was true. We said that was the best evidence at the time. This shows how science works. When newer data emerge, we adapt. And that second statement is half true in that, yes, science does change its mind. That's part of science, right? We adapt to evidence. That's what it means to have the scientific attitude, as Lee McIntyre puts in his book, The Scientific Attitude, which I highly recommend on this topic. But it's not true to say, dear public, please remember that back when we said X was true, we said that was the best evidence at the time. We said we think X is true. X is probably true, but we're not certain. That's not what we said. We said we know X is true. We're confident X is true. You should believe X is true. So we retro we engage in retrodiction, claiming that we gave soft statements, but in fact we gave emphatic statements. And I think that's part of the problem. And so think of Center for Science and the Public Interest, circa early 1990s. Michael Jacobson coming out on camera in front of news media with a plate of fettuccine Alfredo in the palm of his hand, holding it up to the camera and saying, this is a heart attack on a plate. And then later we say, well, maybe dietary fat doesn't have the effects we exactly thought it had. And 
Well, he didn't say in the early 1990s, we recommend people try to consume less dietary fat in general and less saturated dietary fat in particular um, because the best available evidence suggests today this, but we don't have all the rigorous randomized controlled trials we would want. Um, what he said, it's a heart attack on a plate. That's a pretty right. strong statement. And then when we say maybe dietary fat is not as bad as we thought it was 20-ish years ago, people say you're flip-flopping. And I think we have to say, well, you know what? You're right a little bit. We need to temper our statements more. So I do think we need to do that in nutrition. The Pew Charitable Trust has data on their website on trust in science. And what they show is that trust in science is actually pretty high. So the narrative that we're in an anti-science society today is not true. The narrative that trust in science is way down is not true. It's down a little bit, but trust in all institutions is down a little bit. And it's down less in science than it is in other institutions. It's really bifurcated, whereas trust among Republicans in science is down and trust among Democrats in science is not down. On average, it's only down slightly. But what we look at, what we see in the Pew Charitable Trust data is that trust in nutrition science is much lower than trust in other fields of science. So we do have a problem with trust in science in nutrition. And I do think it lands on us to be more tempered and honest in our statements to have the public begin trusting us more. Yeah, yeah, and I think, again, I think that's inherent in the difficulty of doing really high quality, rigorous nutritional research, like you stated. I think there's a lot of research that's out there that's not as rigorous. And so when people do come out with a dogmatic statement, X equals X, you know, that, I think that is a major struggle for us. And I, I highly, highly agree that even in my own clinic, when I talk to patients about ear infections, I give them, this is what we think today based on the current data. And we're going to keep watching for the next iterations of data that may change our policy. For example, putting in tubes for, you know, serosotitis media, the data just came out recently that it doesn't appear to have the effect we thought it did. And that's time to, to shift on these. And I think that is for me, one of the news to use pieces of this discussion is that from a science perspective, from a physician perspective, from you know, any of these perspectives, dogma is rarely, if ever, useful. I think, to your point, I think we should always say this is what we think today based on the best data. We're going to keep researching until we find even better data. And I love that. And I appreciate you stating it that way, because everyone listening really needs to understand that whether it's COVID, nutrition research, anything coming out, that is critically important. So let me segue a little bit because I want to be conscious of your time. If you, David Allison, not the dean, were going to say, based on everything you know today, you know, you've, you, you are highly you know, intelligent, studied everything when it comes to this discussion of obesity, what would you do as your 2022 prescription for trying to heal the obesity epidemic in children in the United States from a non-dogmatic perspective? <laughs> sure. So I get this question a lot, phrased often not quite as eruditely as you have phrased it. And I say to people, let's talk about what you really want to do. Do you wish to have a demonstrable positive impact on the health 
and well-being of some children who are alive today with respect to obesity? Or do you wish to have a positive impact on our knowledge that may lead to a bigger positive impact in the future? Or do you want to make people feel good and know you care today and create just a sort of general positive well-being, even if it doesn't impact obesity? And I often get people scratch their heads when I say that. And I say, well, those are all laudable goals. They're all valuable. And they would require incredibly different approaches. So if you said to me, for example, what I want to do is really affect positively rates of obesity or improve health related to nutrition and obesity in children in the long run, I would say we've got to go back to the drawing board and we've got to stop looking for our keys under the lamppost because that's where the light is best and start looking for new ideas. The old ideas have been worn and worn and worn. Dr. Sarah Deemer, D-E-E-M-E-R, author Awara, O-W-O-R-A, and I published a paper on this in JAMA, in the JAMA series just recently. And I would encourage you to look at that paper where we talk about this idea, not looking at the same old, same old again. And I think we need to do a deep dive on different diets and different exercise programs and different pharmaceuticals. And there may yet be many other things we should try besides diet, pharmaceutical and exercise, but we've got to go back to randomized trials in humans of novel things and really start to nail some stuff down. But that's gonna be a long way. We're not gonna say, I'm not gonna have the answer for you in six months. If you said, no, 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 that's not what I want. I need you to do something for the children who are around today in our community. I need you to help them. Say, okay, do you want me to actually reduce the obesity levels? In which case we'd say the best things we have are clinic-based cognitive behavioral treatments, things along the lines of for example, that Dr. Leonard Epstein at the University of Buffalo is probably one of the leaders in. And I'd say, let's implement programs like Dr. Epstein implements, which are some of the best uh, programs with the most efficacy data behind them. Or for somewhat older children, pharmaceuticals, for which the data are also very strong. And I, I might say, these are not as feel good. They're not as warm and fuzzy as some of the other things we might do. They will not affect as large a population or be administrable to as large a population as a big community or public health approach might be. But these are the ones with demonstrated efficacy. So if you say, I actually have a finite amount of money and resources available, and I actually want to help more children be healthy and not obese, I would say these are the ways to go today. In the future, different. But today, these are the ways to go. If you say, no, 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 that's not what I do. I need to do something for the whole community and I need to make everybody feel good. And it doesn't feel good to say pharmaceuticals. So what really matters is making people feel good, letting them know we care, letting them know we're trying. I would say is then go with your intuition, but recognize that the current available evidence suggests either does not demonstrate these things to work 
and maybe even suggest that they don't work very much, if at all. But they have other benefits of community engagement, of focusing people's attention, right? The next Einstein may be sitting in a third grade class today who is going to be exposed to some school-based intervention we try to put in for obesity. The intervention may not work, but it may get young Einstein thinking about obesity. And 15 years later, young Einstein, now at a university, may say, I've been thinking about this for 15 years, and I think I know how to crack this, and may have a better idea than we have. So that's the feel-good part, the consciousness-raising part, the thing of building tracks, well, walking tracks, and farmers markets and changing vending machines. Those things have not been shown to help much, if at all yet, but they make people feel good. They have other benefits. Exercise is very helpful for people's health, regardless of whether it makes you lose weight. So those are the things you do. So that's really what it comes down to. Do we want these, these conjectural benefits, these feel-good benefits, these community engagement, this caring? That's what we do. Do we want demonstrable benefits on individual obesity, and health today go with clinic-based things, a la Professor Leonard Epstein from Buffalo. Do we want long-term big impact go with fundamental research of looking at what works? Right. And I, you know, that that is a very interesting way of putting it. I have not heard anybody answer a question remotely close to that in that way is very fascinating. And I think it's going to be very fascinating for the, the listeners to hear it put that way. Cause I think there are three, maybe even multiple other ways to look at that question. I love that. So I have one last question that I tend to ask all my guests, you know, you have a, a bountiful knowledge around this topic. If you were given one golden ticket that you could take to Congress and say, here's one policy I'd like to implement today to try and answer or change the obesity problem in this country? What would you ask for? I'm going to parse your question separately for the answer versus change. Okay. And I would say, let's start with the change. They said, you've got one shot. You can take your one shot today to have an impact. I would say it would be general education, not nutrition education, general education increased for all in our society, especially women and girls, because there are data available, which strongly suggest, but do not unequivocally prove that general education for people overall and women and girls in particular leads to better health outcomes and less obesity and diabetes. There are a number of very interesting studies. One is called the ABC Adarian study by the Ramey's, R-A-M-E-Y, a husband-wife couple by the last name Ramey. There's the Moving to Opportunity study by the Department of Housing and Urban Development and others still that suggest this. So that was what I would say is put more money into better life for people, especially early in life, and especially around a quality of education for all parties, including women and girls. Now, if you said to me, what about for studying it? Then I would say, give us money in two big branches, and it needs to be big. 
And branch number one needs to be the forward-looking stuff. It needs to be the stuff that gets us out from under the lamppost. We need to stop looking for our keys under the lamppost. We need to stop yet again doing another study on breakfast skipping. We need to stop doing another study on whether mild amounts of physical activity in school-based settings help children lose weight. They don't. Let's accept it and move on. And then we need to try some bigger ideas. We need to think about things that are very different and we need to do them with the most rigorous studies possible. We need to be wild and open in our thinking. Everything from drugs to surgery, to genetics, to um, intrauterine uh, effects and so on. Then separately, we need to do some of the less wild things, but just nail a few things down with big probative, large, simple trials. That's where we get into effectiveness, not efficacy, right? So you might say, you asked me earlier, how do you deal with the biochemistry of this? How do you figure out what fructose does or something? Those where you have to get into often efficacy studies, you have to tightly control things. But then there are other studies where you just wanna say, well, what happens if I tell people to stop drinking sugar-sweetened beverages? And you may say, well, how do you know they really stop? Well, that's not the question. The question is what happens if I tell them to stop, which is another interesting question. And those you do big, large, simple trials and nail it down. And we just need to finally nail down once and for all. What's the effect of telling people to stop? What's drinking sugar-sweetened beverages? What's the effect of giving people more fruits and vegetables? What's the effect of walking trails? And let's just nail these things down with big, large, simple trials. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. I, you know, I'd love to see AI get thrown into all this as well, because I think that's going to help us even, even better look at some of the nuances, but these simple trials, I think are brilliant. And, and I appreciate your hour plus time. You are a wealth of knowledge and, and just, uh, I love following your research. So I am grateful. I hope the rest of your day is beautiful. So thank you very much. Wonderful. Thank you, Chris. Have a great day. Be well, sir. After hearing that discussion, you can now gain a level of understanding of how difficult it is to do high quality research in the space of excessive weight gain in humans based on the amount of variables that are present in society that are potentially associated with these outcomes in humans. We have just received a masterclass in the understanding of setting up studies, understanding studies, and then the pitfalls that then play out when the mass media and other organizations take pieces of data from scientific research and push them as gospel when, when truth, the data is not as rigorous nor high quality as necessary to make the conclusions that people are making. So it leaves us in a position where we're going to have to do the best we can with the data that's available and look towards the mechanistic models of why X data would make the most sense based on the epidemiology, the science of the, of the time, and the outcomes that we're seeing. We certainly cannot wait, as Dr. Allison stated, for perfect research to answer all these questions. We have to do the best we can with what we have. Meanwhile, we still need to fund high-quality, rigorous research that answers these questions one way or the other, and frankly, for the end of time. For us, it is a problem that is not going away, 
and we need to keep our foot on the pedal to have high quality research and make the best decisions we can because the outcome that follows from not having good data, not making good decisions, unfortunately, is one, bad for each individual human, two, bad for society in general, and three, bad for our species. So with all that information, we need to now start making better decisions based on the data that we have. Therefore, I hope you glean some information from these last three discussions related to childhood obesity and are starting to have a picture painted of what we need to do as individuals, as society, as a species to stem the tide of the dysfunction that we see. And in the end, we have to just keep doing the best we can. So with that, I leave you. Have a great day. Hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the formation of the provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.